0: continuing a series in the psalm. In the psalms, I'm going to be reading uh, from Psalm 103 this evening. And uh, I want to say at the outset here that um, just because you're here on a Sunday evening participating in a worship service doesn't mean that I assume you're a Christian. There might be many reasons you're here. And uh, we are hoping as a church to be a church that is accessible to people who are seeking and curious about Christianity. And so you are welcome. I'm glad you're here if you are seeking, if you're looking uh, after spiritual things. If you're here, we believe God's already at work in your life. And we also want to be a church for those who are already identified with Christ and want to grow in Christ. And we've been going through the Psalms, uh, and this is a series of Psalms. And I picked this Psalm for the grand theological reason that I opened up my Bible one day And I saw this note next to Psalm 103. And it says this, I love you, Dad. Have a great day, Kelly. And it has a little arrow on it that says, My favorite psalm, pointing to Psalm 103. So in honor of my daughter, I wanted to discover what she loves about this psalm and to preach on it. So there you have it. There's my great theological reason why we chose this psalm. So let's read it together. If you want to read along, we have Bibles in the pew that you can read along with us. I think it would be on page 502 if you're using one of the pew Bibles. "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases.' So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like the grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, and for the wind passes it over, and it is gone in its place, knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This psalm is written by King David, and what it encourages is clearly stated at the beginning and at the end, and throughout. Bless the Lord. At the beginning in verse 1 and 2, David repeats it to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And at the end, David expands things a bit, inviting God's angels and all of God's hosts and all of God's works to join in the chorus line, bless the Lord. Now in between, David explains how we can bless the Lord and why we are to bless the Lord, and, and for those who've lost enthusiasm to bless the Lord, how to recover it. So that's our outline. First, how to bless it, bless the Lord, why to bless the Lord, and how to get back on track to blessing the Lord. First, how are we to bless the Lord? Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. We are to bless the Lord with our soul, not merely our body, not merely in action, not merely with words, no. We are to bless the Lord from the core of our being. This is no shallow blessing of ritual. This blessing springs forth from the heart. He clarifies, bless the Lord, all that is within me, This means, let my imaginations bless him, let my affections bless him, let my memory bless him, my thoughts, my judgments, my conscience, let everything in me bless the Lord. David speaks as one intoxicated with love. This is how lovers think and feel and speak. Bless the Lord, all that is within me. At the end of verse 1, he goes on to say, bless his holy name. Now, God's name signifies his nature, his attributes, his his identity. God's name is holy because God is holy. His name is special and glorious because God is special and glorious. And the very mention of God's name brings delight to the psalmist. Isn't that the way it is with names? The very mention of a name of someone you love, doesn't it bring delight to your soul? Remember going to the beach I remember going as a child and you know you'd go by the the stands at the beach that had all the knickknacks, the keychains with people's names on it or pencils or whatever it may be, and we always looked for the name of the person we loved most, which normally was ourselves. <laughs> now thankfully I didn't have a name like Bartholomew, so I was always in luck to find David. But you know it changes when you fall in love for the first time with that special someone. You delight in the name of another. And let's, let's be honest. When you're in love, don't you also look for the name of your beloved? That's what I did when I was in third grade. I always looked for her name as two to see if they had a keychain with her name on it. Incidentally, her name in third grade was Kelly. Kelly. Now, I did not name my daughter Kelly after my first love. Believe me, my wife would not have liked that. Our daughter Kelly is named after my daughter's, uh, my wife's sister, who passed away. And she came to me and she said, "Hey, I'm thinking about the name Kelly for a girl's name. What do you think?" I'm like, "Yeah, I like the name Kelly. <laughs> it's fine with me. It's the way it is with names, isn't it? They're precious." And the very mention of God's name, it's precious to David the psalmist. It brings chills to his spine. The psalmist delights in God's name because he delights in God. His heart is captivated. He's intoxicated with delight for the Lord. He blesses God from the heart. That's how he blesses the Lord. Authentically, from the heart, with full delight. Why are we to bless the Lord? That's a Second question, not just how, but why. Well, there's two reasons given. First, for the amount of his blessings, and second, for the extent of his blessings. First, the amount. His blessings are many, so many, he must keep track of them so that he might not forget. Look at verses 2 through 10. He just lists them out Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your disease, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love, satisfies you with good things so your youth is renewed, works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Do you see the sheer number of benefits here? Verse 3 forgives, verse 4 redeems, verse 5 satisfies, verse 6 works righteousness for the oppressed. In other words, God blesses us in every way we can be blessed. He heals you morally and physically and socially and psychologically and even communally here. But second, notice not just the amount, but the extent of the blessings. Verse 3, he doesn't just forgive some sin. It says he forgives all your iniquity. Notice he doesn't just heal some diseases, but all of your diseases. Verse 4, he doesn't simply redeem those who've made some mistakes, but he also is able to redeem those who live in the pits. No matter how far you've descended, God is able to get you back, to win you back and make you his own. Notice he doesn't place any fickle affection upon you, but he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He doesn't just satisfy you with good things in the next verse, but he satisfies you so thoroughly that your youth is renewed, setting you to fly to new heights like an eagle. He doesn't simply declare peace. No, he works righteousness and justice such that the peace is secured and authentic and genuine. And how does he do this? Well, verse 7, he says, Look at Moses. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Talk about working righteousness and justice. See, he vindicated Israel then, through each and every plague that he brought upon Egypt. And he didn't just free Israel from Egypt, he plundered the Egyptians, taking their gold and their silver and their wealth that they had stolen from the Israelites over many, many years, that he restored it back to his people. So the, the psalmist encourages us to bless the Lord, not simply for the amount of blessings, but for the extent of them. His blessings are just not many, they're magnificent. How does this apply? What keeps you from blessing the Lord with all your soul? Maybe you've simply forgotten the number of blessings that God has given you. They're so regular, so many, you've become numb to them like a spoiled child. Or maybe you can number them, but they don't move you because you fail to see the extent of the blessings Maybe you've grown skeptical of God's blessings. Like many of us grow skeptical of health plans that we we receive, the, the updates every year. Have you ever noticed that when they're going to change your benefits from year to year, they try to make it sound like a good thing? They might give you more benefits, but they cut the extent of the benefits. You might get more medicines covered, totaling an average savings of $50 a month, only to find out that the one specialty medicine that you really need that's going to cost you $300 a month is no longer covered. See, we can become skeptical when there is a large amount of blessings, but they don't go very deep. And in the same way, we can feel that way about God. We don't deny that he's given us many good things, But our gratitude button isn't easy to push because we feel that God is holding out on the one or two things that would really make a difference, that we really want, that we really need. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you have lots of financial security and a great job, but God is holding out on you. You're lonely without a spouse. Or, you're feeling stuck in a relationship with a horrible spouse. Maybe you have great health and a great marriage, but where it really matters is, is you have no respect at work or no respect from your extended family. See, sometimes we can count many blessings, but we fail to see the extent of God's blessings. And, and so it is hard for us to bless the Lord with all of our soul to bless it from the heart, to bless the Lord from the heart. Instead, we bless God through grit teeth, superficially, ritualistically. And so this leads to our our third question. How do we recover our enthusiasm to bless the Lord? And there's three things that I think this psalm guides us in. We need to remember, we need to reconsider, and we need to rejoice. First, When you're stuck spiritually, maybe you're feeling apathetic or angry or depressed, we need to remember God rightly. Look at verse 8 through 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor... Repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we're but dust. See, as self-focused human beings... We tend to struggle with what psychologists call projection. See, at times we project our feelings and our emotions on others by simply assuming that others think the way we think, feel the way we feel, and quite often that's just not true. And sometimes we do this in silly ways. My mother humorously did this all throughout my childhood. If she was cold, guess what? Everyone else in the family was cold. There was no convincing her otherwise. Even if the room temperature was a balmy 72, I had to go put on a sweater and perspire in silence. But see, sometimes we project in not-so-humorous ways. Maybe we are really worried about something, our appearance, our finances, our job performance, our reputation, and we assume we assume that everyone else is consumed by those things as much as we are. And when they're not, we're not just surprised, we may not even believe that they don't think the way we think. For the self-deprecating among us, maybe we're convinced that we're not attractive or not smart or we assume that others think certain ways about us and they they actually don't think those things at all. And for the self-assured, err in the opposite direction, you're convinced you're uniquely attractive and insightful and assume that's others... That's how others think about you, and that's probably not quite accurate either. But see, we don't just project upon people. We project upon God. For some of you, if if something feels good, we think it must be good, and God approves, or at least he could care less. Whether that thing is venting our anger or acting upon our sexual imagination. For others of you, if, if you feel stressed or depressed or just plain bad, See, rather than come to grips with those undesirable emotions and deal with your unwanted feelings, we project them onto God subconsciously. See, if we're overwhelmed, we think, well, God must not be in control. He must be overwhelmed too. And if we can't forgive, we assume maybe God can't forgive either. But notice the psalmist in these verses, he allows God to speak for himself. Instead of projecting his feelings onto God, or assume how God must feel and what God must think. Instead, he listens to God. Because the fact of the matter is, God has spoken. And in verse 8, he has said that he's not partially merciful and partially gracious. He is merciful and gracious, period. That is how he has revealed himself. And David, the psalmist, is echoing how God has described himself throughout the Old Testament starting when he appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. And he declared himself, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping my steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yes, God gets angry. He's not an apathetic God of no anger but neither is he a a raging God of blow anger. Rather, he's a loving God of slow anger. His anger is controlled and pointed toward a good purpose. And in verse 9 of Psalm 103, we see that, that in his anger he chides. He chides for a time and then relents because he has a loving goal, not to berate us but to redeem us to lead us to repentance and change and once we re- we repent he forgives and when he forgives he really forgives he doesn't hold it over you see he does not deal with us according to our sins and iniquities and he removes our transgression from us permanently as far as east is from west the psalmist declares how does this apply When you're having a difficult time blessing the Lord from your soul, remember God rightly. Consider maybe you're projecting upon Him things that are not true. Let Him speak. Understand who He really is. He is full of mercy and steadfast love. Don't project your assumptions upon God and let those projections dictate reality. Because that is the essence of idolatry. A God made in your image. But instead, see your Heavenly Father for who He is. See how He really thinks. Understand how He really feels about you. He is communicating what He thinks and what He feels in His Word, in this psalm. So whatever obstacle you face in blessing the Lord from the heart, overcome it by remembering God rightly. And you will rediscover your desire to bless Him Because the real God is so much better than you can ever imagine. He is bigger, better, more loving, more merciful, wiser. And as you set aside your projections and listen and behold him, you will be compelled to bless his name. So first, remember God rightly. Second, reconsider, particularly when you're tempted to turn to others. And not God. Reconsider. Only God is perfectly steadfast in His love. Only He can fulfill your longings and guarantee all things will be made right as they should be. We all long for righteousness, don't we? See, during life's highs and lows, we commonly call out to those we trust, those we love, to a friend, a spouse, a mentor. And we pour out our hearts to them. And, and when feeling uncertain or worried or stressed, it's, it's common to seek their counsel and their encouragement. And it's not wrong to turn to others for help and encouragement. That is a good thing. In fact, God commands that we do such. When Adam and Eve were alone, I mean, when Adam was alone, he said it's not good for man to be alone. So he made Eve. But we must be careful that we don't replace the position God should have in our lives and put other people in that place By caring more about what other people think than what God thinks. By exchanging the intimacy we should have with God and instead giving it to others. See, are you willing to first come to God, to give him the priority through prayer and fasting, reading, meditating, worshiping? Too many of us are in the habit, myself included, of turning to human counselors for comfort before I turn to God. And his word for comfort. And while human closeness is of tremendous value, the reality is any human comfort compared to God is frail, ignorant, and it will pass. Look at it in verse 12. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. See, verses 15 through 19 that I just read there, They're not simply stating the obvious reminder of how short man's days are, that they're like grass, or how frail man's glory is, like a flower. Rather, they're stating a contrast. Verse 17, they're comparing man to God. But God, by comparison, has a steadfast love that is everlasting upon those who fear him and keep his covenant. In other words, only God will love you like you need to be loved from beginning to end, like you long to be loved. So place your ultimate trust in God and God alone. Don't place your ultimate trust in anyone else because, quite frankly, they can't bear the weight of that trust. They will crumble under it and you will grow bitter against them. See, even the best parent, the best lover, the most obedient child, the most faithful friend, cannot love you as steadfastly as the Lord does. Now some place their hope in the ideal lover, thinking that life's problems will end once they're married. In 20 years of ministry to college students, I constantly came across that struggle. Not so much in a church where people have been married, now that it's another struggle. If only my spouse would become a better spouse, then... I would trust in steadfast love. But some of you place your hope in your children, living vicariously through accomplishments of your kids. Their success and advancement and reputation means more to you than anything else. Others place it in friendship of a particular mentor or a coach or a teacher or a boss. See, we are stubborn idolaters, aren't we? Despite past disappointments of how people have let us down, We refuse to transfer our ultimate trust from man to God. We tell ourselves the if-only story. If only we had different parents, if only we had a more tender spouse, if only I had better friends, then everything would be right, wouldn't it? No. In a perfect world, Adam and Eve messed everything up because they tried to find steadfast love apart from God. And they ruined the world and they ruin themselves, and they ruin their relationships. Besides, any relationships with any human being, no matter how good and helpful, cannot deliver the righteousness that we long for. Only God can do that. Only he can make things right in every way. So the psalmist gives us a reality check. Even the most dependable person will fail you. They'll be taken away from you. Even the most loving person be taken away from you in death. There will come a day when every human relationship you have will prove to be not enough. Their comfort, their wisdom, their their provision will not suffice. Some of us have already faced this reality. Some of us are facing it now in a season of suffering where mentors or friends or a spouse has never gone through what we've gone through and all of a sudden we feel alone and disillusioned because the person we could connect with, we can't connect with anymore. Or maybe we discover it in midlife when you lose a friend or a parent or a spouse that was our life. And now, all we have is God. All we have is Jesus. And the question we must ask ourselves in our pain and in our disappointment and in our disillusionment is, Is God enough? Is he enough? And the hope of Christianity is yes, he is. God is more than his na- enough. His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. And when everything else breaks, his love holds even when we're in the pit, because he goes into the pit with us. He did it on the cross. He does it here in Psalm 103. He goes into the pit and he pulls us out because he remains in control. He remains good and his blessings remain in the pit. And the Lord in verse 19 is ruling on the throne. He's established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom is over all. So how does this apply? First, don't put anyone else on the pedal. Only God belongs on the pedestal. Sorry, don't put anyone else on the pedestal. Only God belongs there. Care more about what God thinks than what any of your friends think? Trust in his presence more than anyone else's presence. He alone can satisfy. He alone is enough. But secondly, if others have put you on a pedestal, step down before God removes you in a more dramatic manner. Step down off that pedestal before God takes you off in a way that is humbling. See, that's a trap for so many leaders, pastors especially. Parents, direct your children to trust God and his word even more than they trust you. It's not a terrible idea to tell them that you will not always be there to provide and protect, but God always will be. And when you fail them, tell them God never will fail them. Don't allow yourself to become a God replacement. If you're a counselor, it feels good to be loved and respected and people to come to you for counsel. But I could tell you some of the best counsel I've given people is after six months, I realized this is unhealthy. You keep coming to me and you're not going to the Lord and direct them to the Lord So to reinvigorate our heart's passion to bless the Lord, remember God rightly. And if you have put anyone before God, put anyone else on the pedestal, reconsider and leave that place for God and God alone. And then last, rejoice. When you need help, call out for the choir. Verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Have you ever noticed that nearly every team, sports team, whether it's a high school team, a college team, even a professional team, they always play better at home than away. Their home record is nearly always better than their away record. Why is that? Home field advantage. Everyone wears their colors. The players have the whole stadium cheering them on, chanting their song. The drummers strike up a beat. And if it was like my high school, maybe Queen plays a deafening volume. We will, we will rock you. It helps. It helps the players' confidence as they identify with a common cause because when they hear from the fans, they feel like they're part of something bigger. It's not just about them and their performance. It's about the team or the school or the city rallying together for a common cause, and it's electrifying. But it's just a drop in the bucket to what happens when God's team takes the field. And brothers and sisters, this is God's world. And yes, it is broken and stained by sin, so much so that we can feel that we do not hold the home field advantage. We look around and we see a lot of uh, opponents in the stands and we feel like we're losing ground and we feel like, where are you, O God? But the fact remains, this is God's world. And his hosts and his ministers who do his bidding surround us like a great cloud of witnesses, as it's mentioned in Hebrews 11. And they cheer on the Lord and the work He is doing to build His kingdom. And we get to be the players on the field right now on God's team. And we are being cheered on. And like those players who, when they need encouragement, they turn to the crowd and they go, That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's turning to the hidden crowd. The witnesses. And he's saying, turn up the volume. Bless the Lord, you his ministers, his host. He's calling out for the chorus. And what he's really doing is he's taking notice of ultimate reality. There is a cosmic pep rally going on for God and his kingdom. And when we, are, when we see it, when we open our eyes to it, we are moved, we are energized, we are encouraged to get in the game and play all the more passionately to bless his name, to grow his kingdom. Because it's not about us. We're part of something bigger. And we're in it together with those who've gone before us. And so brother and sister, bless his holy name. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for my daughter who pointed out this psalm and reminded me of its beauty and its poignancy and its power. And God, we confess we are easily distracted. We give other things our blessings far more than we bless your name. Lord, oftentimes we're like I was as a little kid where we're looking to bless our holy name because we're in love with ourselves more than we are in love with anyone else. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Show us Jesus and his beauty. Show us yourself that we may fall in love with you that at the very sound of your name, chills run up and down our spine as we, we feel nothing but gratitude and awe and wonder at your beauty and your grace and your mercy. Father, help us to remember you rightly that we may get back to blessing your name from the heart. God, if there's anything else we've put on the pedestal, help us kick it off and put you there alone to worship you. And Lord, when we need help, help us to call out to each other, help us to rally one another on to the great pep rally of your glory and your kingdom so that we may bless your name. We live in a broken world. It's so easy to get discouraged. Thank you for this psalm that encourages us. In Jesus' name, amen.